Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday, shot clock down to six. Finds one. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started, if you, if you have not already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. Always helps us out, and we always appreciate it. Um, you know, and getting into today, we are recording on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Um, I think I'm the first person in, like, as long as I can remember, that's actually said his entire name out. Wow, I forgot this mouthful. Um, <laughs> joined today by Caitlin Cooper for our uh, two questions to uh, on, on coming out tomorrow on Tuesday. Uh, Caitlin, first of all, how are you doing? And then you want to remind people what our two questions to uh, is. I'm doing good. I, I'm amply prepared for this. Yeah, I mean, every month we're getting together on the third to release these on the third Tuesday of every month, then basically Mark and I come up with two questions to ask each other. Sometimes I crowdsource them from Twitter. So if you have something you really want us to answer, you can always hit me up there. And we just kind of brainstorm and come up with what we think about the current state of the Pacers. Yes, exactly. So I, uh, I'm i excited. I have, uh, I have a couple good ones today. I'm, I'm in- interested to see what you have. And I know we have uh, some good food corner stuff at the end too. Um, do you want to start or do you want me to start today? Um, I'll go ahead and kick it off. All right, awesome. I have to pull mine up because mine comes from friend of the pod. Okay, cool. Dave Searle. Ooh. Pacers pod father. I thought this was a really good question, so I've decided to co-opt it as my own. He says, after big jumps in the preseason, the Pacers have settled into a three-point rate and a free throw rate that is still bottom 10 in the NBA. Better than last year, but not drastically. How do you see that playing out as the season progresses, and does it matter? Oh, so I'll I pivot to that. you first. I love that question because this, yeah, is, this is something one. I've thought about because I do uh, I like pull up the stats for the NBA and just kind of look over all the team trends, you know, every every day or two. Um, and that's been, you know, something obviously at the forefront of my mind. Uh, I think I would be a lot more worried about it if they weren't so aggressive and in getting into the rim. I mean, if I remember correctly, I was looking this morning, they're still getting their, I think almost 40, it's like 44.7% of their shots are occurring at the rim, which is 4% more than the second highest team in the NBA. Um, so obviously that, you know, that's the most efficient looking basketball for the most part. Um, so I think that's been huge. That's like the biggest difference in looking at the last couple of years, just cutting out a lot of the mid range shaft, still hitting well from there when you're, when you're taking those. Um, and then, uh, you know, just really performing well at getting to the rim. They're still not shooting amazing at the rim, but the location effective field goal percentage is uh, huge and not something that I expected to be uh, what it is. But I agree the, the three-point shooting is a little bit interesting because um, I don't have numbers to back this up necessarily, um, but I've felt personally in the games where they shoot um, generally more threes, you know, if it's, you know, five plus threes than they usually do. Uh, it's been more because – they're not getting the looks that they want at the rim and they're just kicking out the stuff and hoping that they hit. Um, at least that's how it's felt. So it, it sounds counterintuitive, like obviously shooting threes to an extent is good. And we've talked about that before. It's not always about just like, there's a conception of that. You just, you know, shoot threes and you win. Um, no, it's about taking the right three, right threes. Like you've mentioned a ton. Um, I actually feel pretty comfortable about where they're at with it right now. I mean, I think, the biggest question I would have is what what does it look like when TJ Warren is in? Um, is he taking the amount of threes he was in the bubble or is he doing what he was doing during the regular season last year? Because I think that that makes a difference too. Um, but I think that would be kind of my initial answer to that. Why, what are you, where are you coming from on that? Right. So, yeah, the numbers that you mentioned about the rim frequency is what I was going to bring up. I looked at PBP stats and mm-hmm. obviously the Pacers are first in rim frequency, but 19th and field goal percentage at the rim. If you look at that um, – Brogdon's still really struggling around the rim. Yeah. I mean, he's like second or third in volume and is, is below 50%, which is a little bit below where he was last year. Sabonis and McDermott. McDermott is at 71% at the rim, and Sabonis is at 73 So those two are, are leading the pack on, on rim field goal percentage. Funnily enough, or funny enough, I should say, mm. um, 
McDermott and Miles Turner have the exact same number of attempts at the rim and McDermott is shooting a higher <laughs> percentage like we all expected. Yes, but, just um, like we uh, just like we wrote it up. Exactly. Um, but yeah, the the short mid-range frequency and the long mid-range frequency, like they were number two in long mid-range frequency and now they're down to 23rd. Um, they made a pretty significant jump in the above the break three frequency, but not getting a lot of corner threes, which is interesting because in preseason – they were running a couple of the same plays that the Raptors run to pin in guys in the corners. And they really haven't been running that that much Mm -hmm. since the regular season started. So I think that they have wrinkles that obviously they've already used or could continue to explore that Bjorkren has to get a few more attempts there if they needed to. But I think, as you say, the one thing that I look at is like, for example, the game against the Pelicans, like New Orleans defense is set to emphasize the ball and to pull middle and take the roll away. So you really have to hit spot up attempts against them. And the Pacers took 45 threes against the Pelicans. Like that's what they needed to do. They hit them at above 40% clip that shows some adaptability versus against Chicago. They took 19 threes, barely got to the line, but they scored 125 points because Chicago's rim protection was terrible. Same thing against Portland. They barely took any threes because they didn't really need to. Like yeah. when you're out there and Enos Cantor and Carmelo Anthony are out there, it's not quite as big of a deal. But um, now with the injuries, I, I do question it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I mean, one stat I would throw out there is um, before the season started, um, I was looking at some of the stuff that the Raptors did and and their half court offense struggled at times last year. They were much more a transition team. And, but Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Fleet took more pull-up threes combined per game last year than the Pacers did. Like the Pacers took like around eight pull-up threes per game as a team. And this year, Brogdon and Oladipo were taking 8.6 before Oladipo got traded. Now Levert takes pull-up threes, but you know we at this point don't know if he's going to be available this season. So they don't really have a lot of guys that they can go to to kind of crack open defenses that way with where the current roster is. I mean, Doug does that a little bit where he might dribble into one coming off a screen, but he's certainly not going to you know, run a lot of pick and roll where he's taking a pull up three, like you might see with TJ or obviously Karis or Brogdon. But um, the one other thing I would look at is why I'm not too concerned by it is they're still limiting their opponents, three point attempts. Like even on this West coast road trip where they gave up some more, certainly last night against the Clippers gave up a lot of wide open threes, but they're still number four there. So they're attempting more threes than they're, than they're allowing their opponents to take. So that math shakes in their favor fairly decently but i think by the eye test when i watch their offense like right now their number i believe they're eighth or ninth in half court efficiency but they've moved into the top 10 in both speed in the half court and distance in the half court like they're just getting so much more movement Mm -hmm. and so much more weak side action that you watch and it's like okay there's an option there's an option there's an option sometimes they don't even need to get to the third option in their half court set because they get a fairly decent you know, whether it's a drive or whatever out of the first or second. So I feel like me looking at the functioning of their offense, I'm not as concerned about it as I was a year ago when it was more, you know, one and done schemes and it, you, what you see is what you get. But um, after what we saw in the preseason, I wasn't expecting it to kind of taper back in the way that it has. But um, as you say, if, if they were fully healthy, I definitely wouldn't be as concerned about it. But if you're not going to have TJ Warren or, you know, Karis slash Oladipo, then I'm not really sure how much any of this matters. If I'm going to be frank, like <laughs> they're just going to be undermanned enough that your three point math probably isn't going to matter. But if they're available, then I, then I would feel better about it. But overall, I'm not too concerned yet. Yeah. I think I would actually say I'm just more concerned about Malcolm's finishing at the rim. Um, you know, right. I, I was really hopeful that that was going to improve this year. And uh, there have been like some flashes, uh, but, you know, like you were mentioning too, they haven't really faced a team with a great interior presence yet, you know, and going back through the schedule, we'll see more, not this week, but the coming week, I think we'll have a much better idea um, of how they're able to attack the paint. Um, Cause I mean, you they play Philadelphia. Uh, I want to see them play. Uh, I can't even think right now, but my point is like, we just really haven't seen this team play against someone who has a great interior presence. Like you could say Andre Drummond, like he can block shots, but in terms of somebody who's altering uh, drives for happening at the rim, he's not necessarily that kind of player, at least not frequently. Um, so I, I don't know the, the, the next stretch of the next like two weeks will be really key for seeing that. Like even looking at, uh, on Wednesday against Dallas. I mean, Chris Stapps Porzingis is back. 
Um, well, some people don't necessarily think of him as a great defensive player. I mean, the Mavs are in the top five in defense right now, I believe, um, right around there. And Chris Stapps brings a ton of length and just difficulty in, in getting to the rim and finishing there. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next couple of weeks and, and, and how the numbers kind of hold up. Because it's still like even in like preparing for this, I had to write down so many caveats in my notes. Like we're 13 games in, so there's like data that matters, but at the same time, like how do we weigh it? Like, I mean, even just last night before the Pacers played the Clippers, they were sixth in defense and they dropped to ninth after one game. Like normally you don't see that, like, like as you get farther into the season, I mean, you're not going to see net ratings, you know, falter or uh, curve that much over one game. But right now it's just so volatile with how, with how few data points there are. Yeah, and it's interesting with Brogdon. I mean, I know we've talked about his reverse layup before, but the, mm-hmm. the reverse layup has really betrayed him in some oh, yeah. games this year. I mean, the game against Phoenix, I believe it was, I think he missed like four reverse layups that were fairly uncontested. Like the one was out of his classic fake pistol and like he gets in there like that's not even necessarily like, you know, as you say, they haven't played a lot of rim protectors. I mean, sometimes the Pacers do a pretty good job of how they position their big so that, that the – you know, if Sabonis is up top facilitating it, you're not going to be facing, you know, a lot of congestion down there. But mm-hmm. and same with some of the stuff they're doing with Miles. But yeah, as you say, it's very small sample, so every night can be a little bit different. But we'll go ahead and flow into your first question. Yeah. Um, so my, it's kind of an overarching question a little bit um, that needs a little bit of prefacing. Um, so I think you know we talked about this when we were looking at uh, when we were breaking down the players. You know. Uh, in the off season, looking at each player and doing a player review. Um, you know, we talked about Aaron holiday having an opportunity to really grow into a six man role with Jeremy lamb out, uh, needing him to grow into that role, uh, frankly. And, uh, also just talking about where he's at as a player. Um, I think I was much higher on him coming out of the bubble than, than I am now, or not that I'm not even high on him again, it's been 13 games, but I think he's been for me the most, it's harsh to say disappointing, but, disappointing pacer and i think it's not necessarily largely on him like he hasn't been hitting his shots but um i look at usage percentage for him like i know a lot of people uh, when i would bring this up or i didn't i, I kind of just floated it on my twitter a little bit but i've been frustrated because even though aaron was with the starters it wasn't really an optimal role for him because i think he's somebody who needs the ball in his hands um to try and generate something you know he's he, he's a much better catch and shoot player you know theoretically than he has been this year obviously he's been pretty off with his shot especially when he's with the starters um but his usage percentage when he was with the starters was only like 15 percent, and for the season it's 16 and a half which is the lowest of his career um i mean you're looking he's running less than two pick and rolls a game currently uh which is you know very very small frequency uh so i think i my my question with aaron is where are we kind of at with aaron right now and where is aaron at because i think um you squint at the roster in, in terms of creation coming off the bench. Uh, you know, what is what is his purpose on the bench? Not even what is his purpose, but his role still just doesn't seem like super defined to me. And when this roster is back together and fully healthy, I mean, we talked about this before too, theoretically, or not, not even theoretically, just like I, I think the idea or the hope is that T.J. McConnell kind of gets squeezed out of the rotation for Aaron Holiday to run bench units or to be that first ball handler off the bench. And right now, um, it does not seem like we're kind of heading towards that trajectory. Yeah, with Aaron, exactly. I mean, that was something that I was considering when a lot of the questions that came in on Saturday, through no fault of the questioners, had a lot to do with yeah. how the rotation would shake out with with Karras available and obviously we don't we don't know where that's going to be mm-hmm. and who would who would maybe fall out and it's like you look at Aaron and Jeremy and I think back to the last playoff series like you look at Aaron and Jeremy and theoretically the two of them in a playoff series are, aren't going to be as schemable I mean when they played the heat obviously one of the main things that TJ McConnell gives you is his ability to push the pace and really kind of just alter games as a spark plug and when they're playing Miami is so good and so well conditioned to get back in transition. Like he wasn't having an impact on their overall pace in the minutes when he was on the court. Yeah. So at that point, like when he's off the ball, we all know what his shortcomings of a shooter are. Then he didn't even end up playing in the last game of the series. And when you look at Aaron, you think, okay, 
you know, even if he isn't playing on ball, he still offers you something as a shooter, like disregarding what he's been doing as a catch and shoot three pointer or catch and shoot option right now. We do believe that he's going to offer you more as a shooter than mm-hmm. TJ McConnell. It's kind of the same thing with Jeremy and McDermott. Like in theory, you think, you know, in the playoffs, it becomes more important to have guys who could maybe go out and get their own shot. But like right now, you're watching Doug McDermott seeing the big chunk of chemistry that's coming between him and DeMontis Sabonis, having him as an overall floor spacer on the court. But in the back of my head, I'm thinking, is he going to get played off the floor by switches in a playoff series? So it's kind of like, which, which of those two groups do you lean more heavily in? Like, I think McConnell and McDermott are probably going to be your more steady, reliable options right now. But are you going to need more from Aaron and Jeremy in the playoffs? And, you know, I will say that I think that Doug would have had more of an impact probably if Sabonis had been available in that sure. series than what he did against Miami. But he also wasn't super effective against Boston the prior year when Sabonis was available because of how Boston was switching. But in Aaron's case, like, I still think, I mean, he's an undersized combo guard. And some of that with the starters, like the Pacers right now are dead last in defending post-ups that include passes. And teams look for him. I mean, they're doing it somewhat against Brogdon, too. They're looking to post them, not so much so that they can get points out of the post-up, so the Pacers will double it, and then they can get an open shot. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that makes him a little bit more schemable. So in some respects, like last year, we knew that the lineup with McConnell and Aaron and Justin and Doug and Sabonis was really good for pretty much most of the year. I still tend to think that he's better off playing in sort of the off-ball role, mm-hmm. um, driving from the slot, getting to his left, being able to hit shots. He goes through these spurts where he just can't make – I mean, this was what happened prior to the hiatus. I forget how many games it was. He was shooting like 25% from three, and then he'll go for a while, and he kind of heats up. So I think he kind of runs hot and cold. He started cold last year, but you know, if you're not going to be playing TJ McConnell in a playoff series, then, you know, as you say, you're going to need somebody to run that bench offense. I mean, I was kind of leaning towards the idea that if, if Karras was available before we knew all this was coming, that I thought it was going to be a really good option for the Pacers to have him run bench offense when you get into a playoff situation, just because his playmaking, um, making passes to the dunker spot, holding on to the last second and making those and then getting two feet in the paint and making kickouts would give them a lot that they don't have right now when Brogdon and Sabonis aren't on the floor. But if we don't know if that's going to be an option or not, then you probably do want to get a few more of those reps with Aaron in case he is the guy that, that, I mean, he's just a more complete. If you look at his ideal archetype, he's more complete than what you're going to get in a playoff series from Edmund or from TJ, but I think so far this season that TJ and Edmund have outplayed him, if I'm being honest. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. I, I would I would fully agree with that. Um, and not even to counter that, I think it's just my my kind of thought process with it too is um, it's just a double-edged sword. Like obviously winning is important. It's always going to be important, when, especially when you're trying to, you know, establish yourself in a new job. But I think that's what it – it's just so it's a little bit vexing and it's part of the reason why I'm not a coach or a front office decision maker, but like I look at Aaron, I'm like, is it better to, to have TJ in for an extra three minutes and potentially win a game? Or is it better to have Aaron maybe make a couple more mistakes and and keep playing through them and, and find more comfortability uh, out on the court in a more defined role. But yeah, I don't know. It's a tough one with him. I mean, because against Golden State, he had a better game passing the ball. I mean, not early on. In the first quarter, I remember even – I think I tweeted about it. I was like, wow, he's kind of getting into the lane and running out of ideas again. And then by as he settled in, as the game went on, he was making – he made some decent reads, obviously had double-digit assists, um, scored the ball better. But he has high highs and he has low lows. Like, And and you have to be willing to weather through some of those for him to – to get some of the development he needs, but yeah, that's kind you know of who, uh, you know, who didn't play in the golden state game. No, who TJ McConnell. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, yes, I just, yes, had yeah, to stir no, the pot yeah. a little bit. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I was totally, I was like, wait, what are we talking about? But yeah, yeah, yeah no, I had right. to, I just, I, right. I had to throw it in the, throw that in there because I think it was just, I don't know. That's kind of where not to keep extending it out, but you just think about it there wasn't another option. So you just had to keep riding with him and see what happened. And it was a positive, um, but I don't know. I, I digress. All right. So question number two, I have a lot of ways we could go. I kind of tended to, 
I liked all the questions that people asked about Karis, but because we just have so little information right now about mm-hmm. what his situation is, I kind of want to be respectful of that, though. Yeah. I do think that there's a lot of good things that he, he, he could offer if he was available, but instead I will pivot to, and not to have too much of a reactionary knee jerk to last night's events, but um, just to put it bluntly, what is this team's answer against wing scores defensively? A, that was one of the questions I thought about, but I, uh, yeah, I have a different one after that. Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think, wow. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's funny looking at how things have played out so far this year. You know, you look at Boston. Um, I think I was pretty firmly surprised that that Brogdon was guarding Jason Tatum. And to his credit, I thought he did as well as he could. Um, well, that's been the story this year. I mean, Malcolm Brogdon is defending the top perimeter option on on every team the Pacers face. Um, you know, you look at this upcoming game against Dallas, you're going to be asking Malcolm Brogdon that, well, I think it'll eventually be Malcolm. I, you know, Edmund might start on him. I, I have no idea who's going to start on Luca, but I think it'll end up being, um, it'll probably end up being Malcolm because he's the one who's got the size and strength to maintain, uh, you know, an entire game on him. But that's such a huge load both ways to put on one player. Um, and as we see down the stretch, you know, it's just like too much to ask Malcolm to do that much on both sides to have like 28% usage and then, you know, go defend the best player on the other side of the court and. We've seen him wear down at the end of games already, uh, at least defensively. He's still able to chug along offensively, uh, but not making closeouts and stuff like that just because of being tired. But my point in saying that, like, you look at even TJ Warren, like, he's a fine on-ball defender when he's healthy. Um, But it's still, again, like, considering what you're asking him to do offensively, it's a lot to put him on a primary, uh, primary option defensively, too. And then you look at it again, Karis LeVert is just from what I have seen in terms of being an on-ball defender. I think he's solid. Um, he's not like any, he's not going to blow somebody away. He's not somebody who you're really expecting to put the clamps on. He can get steals in the passing lanes, but he's not really super strong on ball. I mean, he's really better, not, not better at it, but I think he's more better suited to guarding, you know, combo wing, like combo, combo guards or, uh, smaller wings who aren't as, uh, explosive because he doesn't, I mean, he's what, like 200 pounds soaking what, um, so it's hard to ask him to guard Kawhi or PG. So really, I mean, the team is still just devoid of having options who can really defend those kind of guys, which is still a problem. Um, and I think it just kind of falls back on it. And it goes into what we saw last night with, with Domas out there, uh, without miles. I mean, this team's defense is not good. Uh, you know, again, they were able to, they, they looked competitive in the first half, they allowed 88% of shots to go in at the rim, which was just, that was uh nightmarish. Um, and you just kind of run out of options. So I think it's going to be less apparent during the regular season because you can team defense matters more when you're playing in the regular season over a huge stretch of games. And I think the team's shown that they can play good team defense, but when it gets down to mismatch hunting in the playoffs, yeah, I definitely am. Uh, I, I'm kind of scratching my head to think about, where the team goes to defend guys like that because that's how you win in the playoffs you know like if if you're playing boston in the first or hopefully maybe second round um who's guarding jason tatum for the last 10 possessions of the game you know like stuff like that i mean that's extremely important right so let's back up and like Mm -hmm. just ahead of last night like obviously i mean up until right before the game i didn't know that miles had injured his hand against Portland. If, if that yeah. was mentioned after the Portland game, I didn't hear about it. Um, so I think that we could look at that roster pretty logically and think that that was going to be a beat down. Yes, like, I mean, yes, I don't 100%. know what you, you expected from it. Oh no. I was, I was dude, surprised that it was even close in the second because quarter. Because not only was there going to be defensive slippage because we know how important miles has been defensively. Like not only was there going to be the defensive slippage, but then, you know, we don't have the team's third, fourth, fifth, sixth option available. I mean, mm-hmm. if we're counting, if we're counting Oladipo slash Karras, uh, Miles, TJ, and Jeremy Lamb, like if if you were going to have to give up more defensively, they were going to be able to need to score, and that was even a struggle. So, I think that you could probably expect what happened, but on the one hand, 
like, yes, what you say is absolutely true. Like there were a couple possessions at the rim where it's like, Oh, you know, if, if miles was there, yeah, he has so much more length. He gets that or may, or maybe that trap doesn't get split. But in the other side of my mind, I'm like, okay, but they wanted to be trapping Kawhi a lot of the time, which means that if, so if miles was out there in addition to Sabonis, then Miles would have been defending Zubots, and that means he would have been trapping. So he still wouldn't have been back at the rim. Like they still would have been passing it to Zubots as a as a release valve, and then carving them up in four on threes. Like there was a few possessions, yes. Like especially when they went to triangle and two, and mm-hmm. Doug McDermott is the other lower point. I don't want Doug McDermott having to play weak side rim protector. Clearly, yeah. and if Miles is there, Miles is the player doing that. So that makes a difference, but. I just keep looking at it and it's like that game was, was a study in that because they went through so many different coverages and all of them were kind of equally bad in different ways. Like, I mean, the zone really got carved up. Oh, it was awful. When they were two, three, I looked up at synergy this morning and it was the Clippers scored on 13 of those 23 possessions, which on the one hand, you're like, okay, you know, of Luke Kennard and Marcus Morris are making shots, then maybe you're doing what you want to do. But because you're getting the ball out of Kawhi and Paul George's hands, but Kawhi and Paul George also, you know, kind of carved them up. And when they weren't touching the ball, they were almost just as lethal because you could see some of the possessions in the box in one where it's like, okay, well, you got the ball out of Kawhi's hands. And now Marcus Morris just flashed to the middle of the box in one and made one pass out to a shooter. And that was all it took to get another practice three. And like, if they're going through those, like the box in one was effective against Golden State because I don't know about you, but I, I'm kind of fine with seeing if Kelly Oubre and, on, and Andrew Wiggins can beat me. Oh, yeah, like, I agree. Like, you're fine with that. I'm not so fine against it when you're playing Phoenix or the Clippers. Like, then it became a little bit more gimmicky. And there were times last night where you could see they were, they were going through so many types of defense from possession to possession where it was like they were – the goal of that is to make your opponent have to think against what they were seeing. But in reality, it looked like the Pacers were thinking a lot more than what they were making the Clippers have to think against it. And early on when they were in triangle and two, they forced a couple turnovers. And I was like, this is probably their best look out of what they've done. But mm-hmm. then it was like, okay, well now they're just targeting Doug McDermott at the rim. So that didn't last long either. So when I look back at it, here's my long winded point that like they played the Kings on this same road trip. And they gave up 120 plus points and Miles Turner was available. Yeah. Like, and, and obviously he made a difference at a rim. Like I'm not denying that Miles should be in the defensive player of the year conversation right now. He's been that good with the blocks, the steals, altering shots, but they still gave up 120 plus points against the Kings and Harrison Barnes scored 30 points on 70% shooting. So, I mean, and I even looked at what the on-court defensive rating was in that game for Miles, and the and the Kings scored 133 points per 100 with Miles on the floor, which actually in that game was like the worst defensive rating of anybody on the team, but that's not all on Miles. Like, I'm not trying to make that point. Just saying that, like, teams are still getting going with their wings that have good wings that are that the Pacers are going to give up size against, even when Miles is available. So I circle back to my long question, which is what is the answer against wings? And I don't know that the Pacers have a really good one right now. Yeah. Like I think... certainly I think, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Like I think against, I think against Phoenix, like, and, and Sacramento, they were switching more and there was a lot of miscommunications there. So, you know, you go on the film room and you clean up those little things and there was a couple miscommunications last night. A lot, a lot of the times though, it was just like, we don't have the horses to make this work. Like we just do not have the defenders in this game to, to defend this type of a team more so against Sacramento and Phoenix. I thought it was airs, but I, I don't know what the answer is there. Yeah, I agree. I felt like, especially, I mean, I went back and did a film thread on Sacramento and that was a ton of errors and their, their offense is actually kind of surprisingly good. Um, but no, they run a lot of good wrinkles. Yeah. And it, it totally threw the Pacers off, but the biggest thing, like you're mentioning, like, it was just Harrison Barnes, other than Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, um, and different archetypes too. I mean, Jalen Brown's more of a like the TJ Warren type play finisher guy. Um, you looked at, and obviously Jason Tatum has issues with you know kind of his handle and getting to the rim still. But you look at like Harrison Barnes, almost all of his baskets were a wide open threes, or b just posting Justin Holiday and and isolating. And he's a good isolation scorer. And the biggest thing too, I mean. Like you're mentioning, he's like what, like six eight, two twenty five. It's nice that we can call Justin a four. I still think it's it's just asking too much out of him. 
on, especially if you're looking at a playoff series, like you see that one game, I think that's something like if Harrison Barnes um, was in a playoff series on whatever team against the Pacers, I mean, he's, he's having a career playoff series because there was no one who could guard him. Um, and so I think you're, you're bringing up a great point. Like even if Jeremy, when Jeremy Lamb comes back, I've, we've talked before about how I feel about Jeremy's defense. Like I, he, his feet just really aren't super fast. He's not great at gauging where he needs to go on ball. And then closeouts are uh, a mystery. Um, I never know which direction he's going when he's closing out to the ball. Um, so he's not necessarily, like, I mean, I guess the size, theoretically the size is going to help like having his size there. And he has a ridiculously long wingspan too. Um, but ultimately like what are is it's nice that that he's gonna be back but what is that really doing to help defensively um so i think the the only answer i have frankly is uh, i don't know if there's going to be another trade or anything i would personally doubt it but you look at yeah but i think um you probably have to cut Jalen lecue or or whoever you is deemed cuttable by the front office this is just me speculating to, to everyone listening it's not a like I have any inside information, not like anybody thinks I have any inf- inside information, but just saying um, like the uh, Rondé Hollis Jefferson, that's like the only answer I have. Rondé Hollis Jefferson is still inexplicably a free agent. I have no idea how, but he was really, really good right. for Toronto last year. But then that brings up a whole other problem. Well, then what is Jakar Sampson's point on the team? Because Rondé Hollis Jefferson is just like a, he's Jakar Sampson, a little less strong, but a lot more athletic and can hang on the perimeter better and does about the same offensively. Um, so you can't really play them together. I mean, it's just kind of a redundant player at that point. Um, I don't the know. Jakar, the Jakar question is somewhat interesting because um, bringing up the post-ups again, everybody mm-hmm. knows that like when they're getting these post-mismatches, this is the thing that they do in the Euro League. That's why I brought it up that uh, when teams get a post-mismatch, they'll drop their big immediately into the middle and go to a 2-3 so that when that guy turns into the coverage, they're playing one-on-one against a zone unexpectedly. And there was one possession where they effectively did that mm-hmm. last night against the Clippers, but it's Doug McDermott dropping middle <laughs> as he was the guy in the lineup. And then Edmund Sumner looks like, oh, we're in a zone, like, but I'm still digging and jumping back and forth between my man, and he wasn't filling elbow. So then they end up giving up another wide-open three, but – um, there was moments last night where I kind of questioned why Jakar didn't get some of the minutes because at the very least, when they were in triangle and two, he could have been the opposite point with Sabonis. So they weren't giving up quite as much heft when when the Clippers were driving it. Like, I'm not saying that they would have won the game because mm-hmm. of it, but it felt like they needed that in that particular spot. But yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to to the overall roster construction that you have. Uh, a lot of centers and a lot of combo guards and not a ton in between. And the one person that you kind of had in the in-between TJ is now out for, we don't know how long. And, and then you bring up Brogdon. Like, I mean, he has been the guy guarding Brandon Ingram and, and last night spending a lot of possessions on Kawhi where yet again, another pet peeve, like they're, they're hedging and showing against Kawhi. And then Kawhi's just like, okay, well, I'll just wait for you to go ahead and run away. And then I'm just going to attack one-on-one like that either needed to be commitment to the trap and hope that the other four people can't beat you or just defend it straight up. Like at at that point, I didn't really see what was to be gained from the little show and recover other than, you know, once again, Brogdon, even though it didn't play as many minutes, he just looked kind of exhausted throughout most of that game, perhaps from knowing that, he was just taking the ball out of the net over and over again. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I mean, even at the Phoenix game, I mean, bridges lit them up, which is somewhat, you know, a product of hot shooting. Some of that you're just going to have to live with, but a lot of it too was just length. I mean, he was so like Aaron uh, as well as he played positionally. I mean, asking Aaron holiday to guard Mikhail bridges is like, I mean, that's, there's no way he's six inches taller than him. Um, and you like a lot of the finishes he had too were just because he's so much taller and had. Granted, I think Mikael Bridges has like it feels like the longest wingspan wingspan in like the northwestern hemisphere. But um, yeah, it's 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 interesting. I have no idea if there's anything they can really do to counter it. And it personally, it's just a it's a personnel thing. 
Well, I think you're going to have to hope on those nights that you're going to have enough scoring. But right now, like obviously last night they weren't going to have enough scoring. And right now, now you're down two of your third and fourth options. But yeah, and then Jeremy, yeah, I kind of worry about his closeouts a little bit, this type of defense with this aggressive a nail presence and swapping out on some of the closeout passes. I'm I'm a little bit concerned but i mean i am excited to see what he looks like when he comes back and certainly having another body and somebody who can at least create a little bit like i'm not saying he's an iso scorer but somebody that you can you know run some pick and roll or a handoff with and can kind of hunt his own shot i think will help because you're gonna have to make up it for it one way or the other and that means that your your offense is gonna have to to pick up because again like even against phoenix Miles and Sabonis at the same time on the floor gave up 133 points per 100 in that game mm-hmm. because Phoenix was smaller. So I think that Miles clearly cleans up your rim protection, but I don't think that last night was can just be chalked up as, oh, well, Sabonis is a terrible defender, and the reason they gave up all those points was because he was at solo five. Like, I think you got to look at what other wings were out there available. Like, that's not the type of roster, if you were going to do that, that you would build around Sabonis for that yeah. to be workable. Um, but definitely something to keep an eye on as, as the season progresses, but yeah, we'll go to your, your question too. For sure. Um, well, one continuation off that, just a quick one. Um, I, I was just so vexed yesterday that Avicii Zubac was out at the key and Domas was pressuring oh, yes. him 25 feet out. I didn't understand that. I felt like there were, you know, four or five pretty much wide open looks at the rim just because of that. And I, I get like, you know, it's about playing an aggressive scheme, but it felt like, um, again, I'm not an X's and O's genius. I, I know Nate Bjorkman is way smarter with basketball than I am, but it was just a little confusing. It felt like they were still playing like Miles was in the in the in the lineup, but he clearly wasn't. You know, I, and it's hard to adjust things from game to game. But ultimately, I don't know. It was definitely confusing to me. Right, and he got caught on the high side twice. Like that mm-hmm. one, he had a real big error where he was hugging the screener on the top side, um, not even on the inbound when Zubats just duck behind him and then no yeah. weak side help even attempted to do anything but um one at the elbow where he was hugging on the screen and then they went past but yeah I mean I've questioned that clear back to preseason I had a graphic where he was standing on the logo straight up um denying Andre Drummond the ball like he was Damian Lillard like and he did the same thing against the Pelicans when it was um oh can't think back up center for the Pelicans Hayes uh yeah and and uh and he does this pretty consistently i mean it's not just like sabonis is going rogue like this is part of the scheme like they want him out denying on the four man or the five man on those handoffs so that they can drag out seconds of the shot clock and i just don't know how much of a trade-off i buy into that versus like we've said before like he's number three or four in distance traveled so he's having to offensively he comes down runs delay actions goes into the paint comes back out of the paint to set a screen then goes back in sometimes to offensive rebound defensively he's coming out top to deny those types of actions those types of delay actions and other things even though a lot of times the person running it is not a shooter so you could probably be hanging back inside the three-point line and then he's having to go back in and box out to get the rebound and sometimes come back out to you know if, if he doesn't get the rebound then then defend another action so I mean that's that's a big question mark I've had throughout I mean the numbers show that they're very good at draining out um, early shots which is what I wrote in the big article like no team was limiting early above the break threes better than the Pacers Mm -hmm. and that's when teams tend to get those and that's how they're limiting threes while also clamping down on driving lanes but I just think that extra mileage can wear on a player in game and as the season goes on and then last night it was just you're just playing into rotation for no real reason like and especially without miles back there defended as you say but even if he is which is they're having him do this even when miles is there like why does miles need to go into that extra effort when you could just defend it normally like that that's been very puzzling to me throughout but especially last night when you knew that your rim protector wasn't available yeah yeah i agree it's uh something that we'll uh Hopefully we don't, I'm sure we're going to have to talk about it again next, uh, next month, but we'll see what happens. Um, so it's actually probably the perfect one to leave off with. Um, it's obviously it's early, you know, like we mentioned 13 games in, but I think I just want to have a, an over overarching discussion on where are we at with, with miles Turner and Demonis Sabonis playing together. Um, and are they, 
what is different from last year? Is anything different from last year besides scheme? Um, and what do we actually think of, of them moving forward? Because I, it wasn't even a question that was brought up to me. Um, I posted something about how miles is, I mean, currently miles is, uh, the, he's a plus 11 net, the paces are 11 points better per 100 uh, when he's solo center but I also you know put out the caveat I'm like hey you know important to note he's when he's alone at center it's mostly with bench lineups uh, so he's you know playing against a bunch of guys who are not starters so that helps um, but granted that's a lot better than last year solo miles minutes last year were you know 3.4 points per 100 worse um, but I mean, so it, then you look to uh, when Domas and Miles are together, they're negative 0.5 points per 100. But if you filter out the holiday line, they're in holiday lineups because those totally tanked the starters. Um, they're about the same as they were last year at a plus two points per 100, which is fine. It's not like anything crazy. And again, it's just it's just numbers. So you can't take you, you obviously have to have context with them. Um, but yes, that's 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 my question, because, oh, I, I keep for belating thing the person put out um they quote tweeted me and they said uh i bet you know that any pacers fan should be happy that they didn't trade miles turner for gordon hayward and um i think when you put in and this is me just speaking preemptively this is not even like the miles has been incredible this is the best year of his career easily he's been remarkable on both ends and some of the strides he's made offensively too um but is this team really that much better than if, if, if they had Gordon Hayward and I'm not even talking about the contract. I just mean like say that he signs the contract that the Pacers wanted. So put that in there, but is it that much better? Um, or is it better at all? I, I guess is kind of my question. And I, I'm not coming at that from a place of bias. I'm just generally wondering your thoughts on it. Okay. So first of all, I did have a person that asked me is miles Turner underrated at this point. That was one of the ones I, I would like to give them credit, but my phone just died. So thank you to the person that asked me that. Um, I think in general, like, and I'm just folding this in because it, it fits with your overall take there that, um, or question, I should say that I think he's probably been somewhat underrated his entire I career agree. because expectations have really, I said this on the pod, I was in, in Portland that like, I don't think it helped miles that the year, that Paul George ended up getting traded that Larry Bird made a comment somewhere along the lines of like, Oh, miles could be one of the best players ever in franchise history. Like I feel like that put a lot of expectations on him heading into his next year to, to explode onto the scene in a way that maybe miles is best. Like what he's doing right now, defensively starring in the role that he's given, like he's being a star in the role of a rim protector. I don't think that, and people are probably going to be mad at me. I don't see Miles Turner as a franchise cornerstone. I don't see him as somebody that you're going to build an offense around. He's better playing off of the action than he is playing within it. I just yep. don't think that his decision-making is going to be there. I mean, we saw that in the Heat series. Despite what his numbers were, like I've said many times before, he averaged like 0.5 potential assists on over 50 passes per game, which is like the worst of anybody in the first round. Like we know how much added dimension they missed against Miami switches by not also having Sabonis. But in the back of my head, even with the different offensive schemes they have, and just like what I said earlier about what happened against Phoenix, that I think that Sabonis and Miles right now are both um, better actualized as what, um, will make them the best types of players that they can be like miles's recognition cutting on post-ups has been a lot better. Yeah. Like the volume isn't huge. It's jumped in frequency from like nine to 12%, but you can see that he's, he's thinking the game. Like you, you can see when he's out on the arc that it's like, Oh, my guy is, you know, sagging in a little bit and I can cut behind him when Sabonis is passing and I'll be right in the dunker and I won't be clogging it up defensively. I'll actually be opening it up so he can pass me the ball. And we hadn't really seen that in prior years. I think that's Mm -hmm. a decent amount of growth from him, but at the same time, like you look at the numbers and it's like, they're eerily almost identical to last year. Like his points, rebounds, assists. The only thing that has changed on a large scale is his blocks and his steals And some of that, like, he's going to be expected to be defending more shots because of what the scheme is. Like, he has to clean up the excesses so there's more blocks for him to go after. He's defending more shots at the rim per game than he was last year. Um, But he's barely taking more threes than he did a year ago. And the three-point percentage 
has sunk with that, that little bit of lift and volume. Like some games he's making, you know, three or four. And, and then, you know, the game against, I believe it was Sacramento when he didn't make one. And then sometimes when he doesn't hit him, he once again goes back to, okay, I'm going to start pump faking ghosts. And then he, he drives when he doesn't need to, like just, just shoot the shot. And I know that like the drives have gotten a lot of attention and I'm glad that if he sees a closeout that he's, he's comfortable putting the ball on the floor. But I mean, that was the thing that was happening last year. I thought it was a little weird after the one game when he got asked a question about, you know, you're doing more in the offense in terms of, you know, handoffs and drives. I'm like, "Mm, he was doing that about this rate. Like last year he averaged about 1.5 drives per game. And right now he's at two only last year. He was converting them at about 60%. And right now he's at about 46. So um, the conversion rate is sunk. I think that both of them individually, I guess I should say, because I do think that Miles's feel has shown a little bit of growth that we hadn't been seeing, is that they're both playing really well. I just, in the back of my head, I still question if this is a long-term solution. Like, because like I said, against Houston, when they were on the floor together, other than like the double block that got a lot of attention, they got outscored by like 13.3 points per 100. When they're on the floor together against Phoenix's smaller lineups with Jay Crowder out there, they gave up like 130 points per 100 possessions. Obviously the Sacramento minutes when they were together weren't great either. Um, So, and one other one, because somebody will probably bring up that they went one and one against Boston. Boston isn't going to be starting two bigs at the end of the year. If yeah. they are, something has gone dramatically wrong. And in the minutes when Boston was playing only one of Tice or Tristan Thompson and the Pacers were playing both bigs, they were getting housed in those minutes across both of those games too. So I feel like both of them all along, like we've said, like – you, you could never say, oh, one of these guys shouldn't be starting. Like they're both too good to be, you know, bringing one of them off the bench or something. And I feel like for this season, this is probably their best solution. And it's probably worth it to see it more again at the end of the year, because let's face it, I don't know what you thought of Goga's brief minutes. And oh, I don't wanna, yeah. I don't want to judge him too harshly. In the first 10 minutes out. of Bambi. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't want to judge him too harshly because he's obviously been out with an ankle injury, but there were like, two maybe three possessions just in the first half alone where I looked and I was like what type of defense is Goga playing like there was legitimately one possession where I had no idea what type of defense he was playing and I don't think his teammates did either so it's kind of the same situation as last year that you look at it and it's like okay well even if the Pacers sniffed around and like let's say some you know all-star level player became available and the Pacers thought hey we can cobble together a deal for that guy like okay but then what are you doing at backup five like, like, I don't think that Goga still doesn't look ready to play that load of minutes in part because he's never really had much opportunity to develop, but I wasn't, you know, super encouraged by what we saw at that Clippers game. So to make a long story short, I fully expect that we're going to see uh, what this pairing is yet again in a playoff situation. And hopefully the roster is healthier to support it than it was again last year. But I still have some questions about how far you can get with it, even though I think that both of them are playing well and the areas that you need them to play well. Yeah, exactly. I think that's kind of where I'm at as well. I think um, I have a piece hopefully dropping tomorrow uh, on miles as long as some crazy, I've had it ready for like a week and then news keeps breaking and it's like, Oh, Nope, not today. Um, But you know, miles really has improved feel wise. And again, I just want, I hope people realize this is not us like talking down on on miles or Domas. They've both been really good. Um, But it's just, the reality of, of basketball, you know, at some point, if somebody's going five out, you can't have Domas and miles playing against a five out defense for an entire fourth quarter. It just, um, it's, or not a five out defense. You get what I'm saying? Like trying to defend. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's asking a lot out of them and it's just, frankly, it's not realistic at some points. Um, but hopefully and, we get proven. And wrong. like you said, like it goes back, I mean, and they are using him more, like I said, like a six foot 11 shooting guard, he's playing mm. off the ball, he's playing off the action, but he also needs to be able to hit some of those shots. And I'm glad that he's for the most part taking them sometimes still self-checking out of some of them, but if neither one of them are going to be hitting threes at a high level, it becomes harder in a playoff situation as well. Like, and I'm still not completely buying into, you know, Sabonis's little five game sample size where he hit some above the break threes. Like it would be great if some of those fell, but again, it also goes back to what I've said all along that like uh, somewhat at the stretch five position, if you're not 
in the action, how much does a team really care? Like, yeah. and, and that's the thing that matters. Like how much defensive attention are teams taking extra steps off of you if you're not the person shooting. And in Sabonis's case, he's going to be the person, you know, at the elbow or, or outside the three point line, holding the ball and making a play with the types of sets that they run. So his defender is going to be occupied there in some degree. Whereas, you know, if he weren't playing on the ball or if, if miles isn't like what happened against Miami, then, you know, Bam's just clamping the driving lane, but I mean, I think a good test will be coming up yet this first round. We'll see how they look. You know, when they play a team like Milwaukee, I did think Miles had some better possessions defensively against Giannis in the third game last year. Um, Seeing how they defend that, I mean, obviously teams in the East, uh, if they get another, I think they'll play Boston once more in the second half. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Or will they play? Yeah, I think they play Boston. If they see, like, you know, seeing what they look like when, when Boston's playing small, like they will when Kemba is available on like he was in the first two games. Uh, let's see. I mean, I'm interested to see Philadelphia. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, with how well Embiid has played to start the year and, and how much trouble they've had guarding Embiid. Um, I'm interested to see that as well. And they're smaller on the perimeter too. They actually have some semblance of spacing this year. Um, the Bucks. I mean, with Drew Holiday, I'm, of course, Drew Holiday is going to come back and bite the Pacers one way or another because he didn't end up a Pacer. But, yeah, I mean, the Bucks are looking good. They're actually making changes defensively. Um, I don't know. It's just going to be interesting to see how they stack up against the rest of the East. Yeah, because yeah, we haven't seen a lot of that yet. I will say I do hope that when they play Joel Embiid that Sabonis is just the person guarding him on yes. the post-ups and then they drop Miles in on the zone. Like the, the thing that I wrote about that would work against post-mismatches would work in the same way against the Sixers. That way you're not having long closeouts up at the top from, you know, Miles or Sabonis. Then Sabonis is defending the quote-unquote post-up. Miles is dropping into a 2-3. So then Embiid is turning into a 2-3 zone. And then you're closing out up on top with, you know, whether it's Edmund Sumner or Brogdon or, you know, Aaron, whoever they're playing. I, I think that that would be a good wrinkle to look at for that particular matchup. That might, you know, it would shield Miles from getting into the early foul trouble and still allow them to to have the speed out on the perimeter that they need. Yeah, hopefully we see that. Um, it sounds nice. We, we don't have to worry about it for a while, luckily. I think we don't play, uh, we don't see them play Philadelphia for two or three weeks still. But Caitlin, are you ready for oh. Food Corner? Oh, sorry. Oh, I you almost won't. forgot Food Corner. Yes, I'm pretty I'm pretty stoked for food corner. I know you're bringing some heat. I brought some as well. Um, I had the last question, so I feel like it's only fair that you start off with food corner. Right. So this week in food corner, I took to Twitter for a very scientific Twitter poll (laughs) and asked our listeners what their opinion of Skittles was. Yay or nay. And 74 percent say yes. So what do you say? Yes or no to Skittles? So I answered that and I was in the nay column. I am not yes. a Skittle person. I do not like Skittles. They no. make the inside of my mouth raw. Um, they also make my tongue colored. I don't really enjoy that particularly. And I just think they're too like they're too sweet. Like I feel sick if I eat an entire pack of, of Skittles. Like just like the regular, even a snack size snack size pack. It's like I just don't think they're that good. I I, I yes. Like all of that is a big yes, exactly. I don't know what the 74% of these people are thinking. Like, I'm hoping in my mind that they're like, yeah, you know, if a Skittles are all that's there, like, that's my only candy option, then I'll take it, which is why I broke down the next poll and asked amongst Skittles, Jolly Ranchers, Starburst, and Sour Patch Kids, which they would take. And Sour Patch Kids, that restored my faith in humanity because <laughs> 44% of people picked a Sour Patch Kid. But this, those four candies were picked by me for a specific reason. And here is my problem with Skittles. They are an identity crisis. <laughs> they don't know what they want to be. Like, they are a, it's like they're a piece of juicy fruit gum masquerading as an M&M or like a Reese's Pieces because they can't even say they're masquerading as an M&M because they don't have chocolate. So like, are you that? Are you like a crunchy mint that just happens to taste like fruit? Like, I don't know what you are. So until you know, I don't really want you because like, look at the other three things. A Jolly Rancher is very specifically a hard candy. Yep. A Starburst is a square shaped piece of taffy. A Sour Patch Kid is a sour gummy thing like 
I know what those are. I don't know what a Skittle is. I love the nuance in the first three. And then we end up with a Sour Patch Kid is a sour gummy thing. (laughs) Exactly. And now here's my next question. Because I have um, bad memories from high school of people telling me this was a legit thing that happened to me where we were eating gummy bears one day at Mm -hmm. school. And they're like, those all have the same flavor. And I was adamantly, no, like a pineapple gummy bear tastes like pineapple. And they were just like, no, that's just what your brain thinks because they're different colors. And so I was blindfolded and taste tested gummy bears and got all of them right because they very clearly have different flavors. You agree that Skittles have different flavors, correct? Yeah. Like, yeah, like they absolutely do. But yet then I saw people online like not in this Twitter poll, but we're like arguing that all the Skittles taste the same. I'm like, no, that's so false. No. That's so there false. are lime, lemon, or not lemon, but there are, are lime and, and grape and whatever else Skittles. I don't even really know what the flavors are because I so off, like I do not eat these because they are gross. But um, the next point I was going to make is I do believe that there are grape Skittles. And why do we just accept that what grape flavor is, is grape? Like, why do we call that grape? It doesn't taste like a grape. It really doesn't. It tastes more like Kool-Aid than a grape. Like, I mean, I wouldn't you accept it more? Like, I would be way more accepted of this if it was called purple. Like, it tastes nothing like a grape. Yeah, like, it really doesn't If you look at the Sour like Patch Kids by comparison, which is, again, why they are superior, <laughs> like, a lime Sour Patch Kid tastes like lime. A lemon sour patch could definitely taste like lemon. So it is an orange one. Like they are the flavors they're supposed to be. I don't know why we accept that grape is grape. That tastes nothing like a grape. I but, yeah, I think that we should just not eat Skittles. They're they're kind of gross. And they're too hard too. I feel like I've almost cracked my tooth on them before. Like it, it with an M&M if you bite down on an M&M, like it's a little bit crunchy, but a Skittle like is legitimately painful to bite down on sometimes. I did have somebody reply and say, like, Skittles gum was it. And I forgot that Skittles was a gum. But I think I would support it more if it was a gum. Because then I would know what it is. That would actually make more sense. Yeah, it would would totally bring clarity to what a Skittle is trying to be. Like, I completely reject Skittles. I reject the 72% of you that said these were good. Other than, you know, keep listening to us. (laughs) One one point in time, like, we'll probably share the same food take. But this has been Food Take Corner. Thanks for weighing in on Skittles and for uh, reaffirming my faith in humanity by picking Sour Patch Kids, which are clearly the most superior fruit candy. Well, yeah, I have uh, I have my my little food take corner. Oh, no, you have yeah. another one. I do okay. have another one. Um, I did not make this a poll, but I have tweeted about it multiple times and received a lot of uh, a lot of hate for it. Um, I do not like pickles. I pickles. don't think pickles should be eaten, actually. I, I just don't like pickles at all. I don't like them on hamburgers. I don't like them on sandwiches. I don't like them at all. And I think they suck. Is it because you think they're like an embalmed cucumber? Or what is the reason? Well, like- yeah, I don't like cucumber and embalmed cucumber. <laughs> uh, yes, I, uh, I often pick up my cucumbers from the mortician. Uh I mean, I just don't like them. Like they're they're too they're sour. The texture is weird. Like I get that there are crunchy ones too, but then they're still kind of slimy. Like I just I just don't understand the point of them. You know, like I, like all flavors. Like we're talking like no bread and butter pickle, no dill nope, pickle, nope. like no pickle. I've tried all not. pickles. I do not like them. I think that some of the bias might be coming from this. Like I've said this many times that at a fast food restaurant, if if they needed to charge me like an extra 10 cents or something to put a respectable pickle on the burger, (laughs) like I would totally be willing to pay the extra 10 cents because by comparison, I don't know how often you've eaten at steak and shake, but by comparison, steak and shake uses like a long flat pickle instead of like those little shaved pieces of, I don't know what, and they stay relatively chilled they fit on the burger, like they're not falling off and they are a much more high quality pickle. Like you might be tainted because when you go to like McDonald's, Wendy's, most of these like um, lower grade, I guess I would say fast food places, we're not talking like steak and shake or in and out burger, or, you know, other places that the pickles just are not good. So then they make you think that like all pickles are bad. 
That's fair. I I just I see like I don't know. I've tried so many different pickles, and I guess McDonald's pickles definitely uh, had an ill effect on me. Um, I just I don't know. I just can't get over them. But also, can we mention steak and steak and shake? I love steak and shake. Like I really enjoy their cheeseburgers, but they have like the most confusing fries ever. Like the little mini fries, and they just aren't very the good. The shoestring fries. Yeah, I, they're 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 just small, and they're often kind of soggy. They're just not that good. Yeah, like they can they can border greasy, but I do think I do recommend to you by the next time we talk that if you have an opportunity, get a steak and shake burger with pickles, and I can about guarantee that you will like it better somewhat than the pickles that you've gotten from the other fast food restaurants okay well i will uh i will certainly have to try that this is my homework for uh for next tuesday in uh february it wouldn't be the 18th but it'll be february sometime third third tuesday in february i will try <laughs> a, a steak and shake burger with pickles on it um i think it's good that we've talked this out oh this was fantastic i think <laughs> you know why even talk about the pacers when we can talk about pickles um Okay, we're, probably, we're down to two listeners at this point. <laughs> hey, you know it's it's for us at this point. You know, once we're once we're an hour and one minute in, it's just about it's just about what we want. Um, well, Caitlin, this was fun. Uh, we will obviously be doing it, it again relatively soon. I'm sure we'll probably talk again before uh, that as well. To everyone listening, of course, thank you for listening. Read us over at Indie Cornrows. Uh, drop a rate and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. Um, just thank you for listening. Have a good rest of your day. Um, And we will be back in a month.